All right, you guys, um, we're going back to our Psalms, okay? We're going back to Psalms, so if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going this morning over to Psalm 138, Psalm 138. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and keep that one. That would, we'd love for that to be our gift to you, uh, but we're going to Psalm 138 in our Bibles. It's page 521. Last week, Aaron, uh, I need a Bible. <laughs> Sorry, I, did, I forgot to bring mine up, and thank you. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Grab one off the chair around you. Yes. Yes. I'm like looking down. I'm like, I need to read this. Oh, it's not here. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, yeah, Aaron did a great job last week. I, he just, it was killer. Um, I was in Michigan with Lauren last week, um, just getting a little bit of time away, which was a huge blessing. And I, I caught the sermon um, online and and uh, we've been going through the Psalms and looking at themes, right? Kind of like a diamond. When you turn it in the light, different facets shine out. When you, when you read through the Psalms, what you find is that these themes shine out in different ways, right? We've looked at, at justice, and, and we've looked at joy, and we've looked at lament. And, and last week, he started this theme of gratitude, right? Because there are Psalms of gratitude. They simply pronounce, give thanks to the Lord, right? It's one of the major themes, not only in the book of Psalms, but in the entire Bible. When you read through the entire Bible, um, we are commanded to be grateful almost 200 times. It's one of the major themes running through Scripture, right? Give thanks to the Lord. You just see it over and over and over. The Scripture is continually teaching about the value, the importance, the power, the necessity, right? And what that tells us is that it's not only something that God expects from us, but it's something that is good for us. Because God, when commands us to do something, it is, it is not only a, a communication of an expectation. He's revealing to us how we're wired. He's revealing to us what we need. Because everything that glorifies God is good for us. It is good for us to give thanks. It is good for us to be grateful. God created us to thrive in gratitude. Now, last week, uh, Aaron talked about how gratitude is essential for happiness, and he defined happiness in a way that I really liked. He said that it was long-term contented satisfaction. Long-term contented satisfaction. Wouldn't you like to be existing in a continual state of long-term contented satisfaction. That's a beautiful thing, right? Uh, we settle for the pursuit of pleasure. We settle for distraction. God wants to fill us with joy. Um, this theme, joy, just keeps coming up again and again. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. We lose our joy, we lose our strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Gratitude is the seedbed of joy. Did you follow that? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Gratitude is the seedbed in which joy grows. You cannot have joy without gratitude. Gratitude is the seedbed in which it grows. And today what we're going to talk about is how to tend that garden. We're going to talk about how we tend the seedbed of gratitude so that we can grow rich in joy so that we might be strong okay so we're taking a look at psalm 138 
Psalm 138. Okay, I got the right one. All right, Psalm 138, follow along with me as I read this. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, how do we increase gratitude in our lives? How do we foster a spirit of gratitude? Not moments of gratitude. Not, not um, seasons even, but, but like the atmosphere of gratitude. How do we increase the fruitfulness of gratitude? All right, I got three points for us this morning. I'm going to tell you up front. Grace is the seed. Humility is the soil. And trials are the fertilizer. Okay? Grace is the seed. Humility is the soil. And trials are the fertilizer. So first of all, let's talk about grace. Grace is the seed that produces the fruit of gratitude. Um, gratitude isn't an act of the will. I don't know if you've ever realized that. Um, gratitude is not an act of the will. You can give thanks, which is uh, a behavioral action, but you can't command your heart to be grateful. You know what I'm saying? Gratitude is, is, is an emotional, deeply emotional, powerful response to a stimulus right? You, you can give thanks, which is a good thing to do, by the way, even if you don't feel grateful, it's a good thing to give thanks. But you can't force yourself, you can't command yourself to be grateful. You know why? Because feelings don't obey your commands. You can't command your feelings, they respond to your thoughts. Emotions respond to your thoughts, they do not obey your commands. Your thoughts are the seeds of your emotions. If you don't like the way you feel, you have to change how you think. Your thoughts are the seeds of your emotions. What you plant in your imagination is what you will grow in your heart. The thoughts that you entertain in your mind will bear fruit in your emotions. You know this to be true. If you're um, having conflict at work and you're just reliving that conflict over and over and over that one conversation with the boss or the coworker that just got under your skin what's the emotional response that comes as you plant those seeds in your in your imagination come on now you know 
You get a little frustrated, angry, maybe some sadness, right? When, when, when you think about um, the blessing you missed, that thing that you were hoping for that didn't come through, and it's already gone and passed, you were hoping for it, it didn't happen, but you just keep thinking about it. Um, I, uh, I, I used to take a group of kids down to a, a place called Marble Hill. It's down by Cape Girardeau in southern Missouri. And when I was in education in my previous life, I would take students down there and we would do work service projects at this um, live-in residential center for, uh, they, were, they were people that were missionaries and full-time gospel workers that, that had reached retirement age and they either didn't have homes because they had lived their lives on the mission field or they decided to sell their homes in, in different, but they, they came together in this beautiful um, care facility where basically, um, I mean, it was just a rich and beautiful place. And, and so I would take students down there and, um, and we would do work on the grounds. You know, we would, of course, do, you know, clear out brush and have bonfires and do all the fun stuff. But my, my favorite was when we had the opportunity to just sit down with the residents and have conversations. And one, one, one time I'm sitting down and, and um, Marge and Frank, I don't remember their actual names, but I'm going to name them Marge and Frank. And I'm sitting with Marge and Frank, and Frank is sitting there with his paper, and he's telling us about his previous life, about how he loved horses how he always had horses, he always cared for horses, and horses were like his, his, they just were like the physical manifestation of his emotional well-being, you know what I'm saying, like he just loved horses, and one of the things that had to happen when they got to this stage of their life is that he had to let go of his horses, and so he no longer had his horses, he no longer cared for his horses, but every day he would go and he would pick up the paper and he was, he's like, but they're right here. And he, and he would start reading the classifieds, you know, like, like about the different, this is a small town and they had horses in the classifieds. Okay. So that happens in Marble Hill. Um, but he's, he's like looking at these things and he's telling us about it. And as he's telling us, you can just tell he's getting agitated, you know, he's like getting more and more frustrated and, and he's getting, and finally Marge just reach over and smacks the paper. And she's like, Frank, just put down the paper. Just put down the paper. What you focus on produces what you feel. Just put down the paper. You know what happens to your heart when you're on Twitter and you're just doom scrolling all the bad news, right? It just is overwhelmingly sad. It just makes you feel hopeless, especially if you're doom-scrolling Christian Twitter, which is a dumpster fire. It just makes you like, is there any hope for any of us at all? Listen, where you set your mind determines what will grow in your heart. If you want to grow gratitude, you have to plant seeds of grace intentionally plant seeds of grace. Take a look at verses one through three with me. One through three, because this is just, like David starts out, right, in one, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. So I want you to catch what he's saying. He's not just saying, I give thanks out of obedience. He's not saying, I give thanks because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we do it because it's the right thing to do, and actually going through the motions helps us reproduce the emotion, or going through the motions helps reproduce the emotions behind it. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I give thanks to you with my whole heart. 
David is saying, I feel overwhelming gratitude to you right now, God. Like, I am just filled with this humble joy, right? I am, I am, give thanks to you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. The word gods there in the Hebrew is the, the Hebrew word Elohim, um, which sometimes is a name for God. Sometimes it is a reference to other powers or forces. Not sure exactly what it means here. You know, it could mean um, angelic beings, that he gives thanks. He's, he's declaring his gratitude before the angelic host. It could mean the powers of the world. David, as a king, may be saying, I give thanks to God the Most High in front of my peers, the other kings of the earth. He might be saying that he gives thanks to the one true God in the face of the false gods that would claim his gratitude, that would call him to hope in the wrong things and try to find his, his strength in the wrong things. Whatever it is, he's in a position of strength. I give thanks to, to the Lord with my whole heart before, before the gods. I sing your praise, right? He's not just giving thanks. He's singing praise. Have you ever been so grateful that you found yourself humming? That you just had a song come out of your heart? You know what I'm saying? Like it just comes out in music, right? Because music is the song of emotion. Music is the song of the heart. He's like, it's just bubbling out of me, right? Verse 2, I bow down to your holy temple. Like everything in me, like, like when, the, when the sun comes up, there are certain flowers that will turn their face to the sun and follow it through the course of the day. That's what he says. Like right now, everything in me, I just want to be facing you. I want to be near you. You give me overwhelming joy. I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What's producing this thankfulness? This overwhelming sense of gratitude. What's producing it? I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Every time you see that phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness throughout the Old Testament, remember that what that's talking about is God's covenant love. Steadfast love is the translation of the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is the kind of love that isn't a response to what is lovely. Hesed is the kind of love that commits itself to the good of the one who is loved. It is steadfast love, immovable love. It is the kind of love that is carved in granite. And it is rooted in the very character of God. And it is always expressed as a declaration of blessing to the one who is loved. It is a covenant love. It is a love in which God covenants himself, commits himself to the good of the one who is loved, right? I give thanks. Why? Because of the hesed love of God. Because I have a God who has covenanted himself to me. A God who has decreed a blessing for me. It is a steadfast love and it is faithful. It never wavers. It never changes. It doesn't, it doesn't alter when everything alters around it. It is not situational. 
based on my response, my performance, my merit. It is based in the commitment of God to bless. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at the rest of this verse. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. All right, that confused me for a while. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I get it, all right, all right, but what does it mean? You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes we read stuff in the Bible, we're like, all right, all right, that sounds good. And then when it's like, what does that really mean? You're like, all right, all right, I don't know. (laughs) Right? I'm just not sure. So I did some digging here. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. You'll notice there's a little number at the end of that in the ESV reading to a subtext. The Hebrew there literally says, you have exalted your word above your name which is really weird. That gets weirder. You have exalted your word above your name. Now remember, name isn't just a a moniker. Name isn't just a a repetition of, of sounds and syllables, right? A name is an identity. When God reveals his name, he reveals his character. When God reveals his name, he reveals his identity. When God reveals his name, like when he met with Moses, and and Moses is like, "Who who will I say sent me? And he's like, let me tell you my name. It's Yahweh, a Hebrew word that means I am. It's not just a name, it's a revelation of character. He is the ever-present one, the one who was before all things and will be after all things, the one who exists in time and outside of time. He is God, the Lord, the one who is above all things, right? He has exalted his word above his name. You have exalted not just a generic word. Remember that we're talking about a covenant-making God. You've exalted your promise, your word of promise, your word of covenant love above everything else you've revealed about yourself. There's an old-time theologian named Spence Jones who said it this way, God has magnified his promise and his faithfulness to it above all his other revealed attributes. What is the most important thing David knows about God? That God is a God of promises. And he never breaks his word. His promise is founded on his character. And he has exalted his word over his name. He has said, this is the foundation on which your hope rests. What is leading David to experience so much gratitude? That he has a God who makes promises that he doesn't break. That God has decreed his steadfast love toward David. And no matter how David messes up, no matter how many mistakes David makes, no matter how controversial his life becomes, no matter how messy everything gets, this one thing never changes. God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. God is a God who covenants in blessing. God is a God of grace. Now I want you to catch this. This isn't just the idea of grace. It's not just the as a theology of grace or a good doctrine of grace. He has the experience of grace. It's not just that God made a promise. It's that David received the promise. 
right? It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God. To know God, we must receive the promise of God, right? In verse uh, 3, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. David's like, I look back and remind myself of when you reached out to me and I received your grace. I received your calling. I received the blessing of your covenant promise. I look back and I remind myself that you covenanted yourself to bless me. On the day I called, you answered me. I remind myself of who I am because of who you are. Of what I have because how you have determined to bless. My strength of soul, you increased. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? My strength of soul, you increased. Reminds me of the joy of the Lord is my strength right? My strength of soul, you increased. Um, literally, in the Hebrew, it says, you made me bold of soul with strength. You made me bold of soul with strength. You know, when you're filled with gratitude, when you're experiencing that overwhelming sense of gratitude, of God's presence, his blessing, his love, you live life on your toes, not on your heels. You are moving forward into life. You are not sitting back afraid or self-protected because you have a boldness of soul that comes from the joy of the Lord. You are moving forward. You are not pulling back because there is a tailwind. The things that used to be hard get easier. The things that used to seem impossible now seem temporary. It is a boldness of soul because of his strength. Listen, y'all, David renewed the joy of the Lord by reminding himself of the steadfast love of the Lord, the covenant love of God. Now, David did that in the context of the Old Testament looking at the temple sacrifices and the covenant God of the Old Testament. And, and, and God's grace was evident through the promises that he made, the unconditional promises he made through Old Testament history. We have something better. He looked forward to God sending the Messiah. We look back. He looked to the promise. We look to the fulfillment. We don't simply look back to a promise that God will send a Savior. We look back to the Savior. But God fulfilled his promise by sending his Son to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. He came that he might die in our place as our substitute, that he might bear the penalty of our sin, that we might be delivered from our guilt and into his blessing. He took our place in judgment so we can stand with him in his exaltation. We plant the seeds of gratitude 
the seed of grace in our heart as we go back and remind ourselves of the gospel. As we go back and once again renew our experience of God's grace. As, as, as David says, right, that, that on the day I called, you answered me, and my strength of soul, you increased. Let me ask you something. How, how are you planting the seeds of grace in your life through the week? Right? There are a number of ways we do that. That's why, why it's so important for us to be here embodied and gathered. Because the corporate worship of the church plants the seed, reminds you once again of your God of steadfast love and faithfulness. The strength of the people who are sitting next to you renews your strength. The faith of the people sitting next to you encourages your faith. As you sing, as you worship, as you listen to the word, as you humble yourself before this God, you are once again renewed in your experience of the grace of God. As you open the Bible... And you, and you read about this God of this covenant. And you learn about this God of this covenant. And, and you look at the story of redemption and restoration. It plants seeds of grace. It reminds you of who God is and what he is doing. As we worship, as we pray, as we share communion, as we study the word, we plant the seeds. We remember where you set your mind determines what you experience in your heart. You need to plant the seeds of grace. You need to continually be coming back to this God of steadfast love and faithfulness, planting the seeds of grace so that you can experience the renewed joy of his love. So, tending the garden of our gratitude. What's the seed of gratitude? Tell me. Grace. Say it together. Grace. Thank you. I'm going to make sure you're with me. Okay? So we're going to plant the seed of grace, right? Where do we plant it? In the soil of our humility. Right? That's what's necessary. Grace is the seed, but it's only going to sprout in the right soil. You put that seed in the wrong soil and it doesn't grow. That seed only grows in the soil of humility, a heart of humility. Take a look at verses 4 through 6. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. All right, again, I had to struggle with this a little bit because this seemed really strange to me. I don't know if the kings of David's day are different than the kings of our day. You know, can you imagine Putin Xi Jinping, any world leader being like, oh, hey, God's here. Let's give thanks. We've just been stewards of power for the true God of power, the true King of Kings. Let's come with joyful singing and exaltation and give it all back to the God who gave it to us. I, what? Like, do you think the kings were different in David's day? Do you think the human heart was different in David's day? No. So there's an irony here. There's, there's a tension here, right? Now, David could be calling out that the true kings will celebrate the king of kings. The ones who are genuinely carrying their authority 
in humility and subjection to God, maybe. He could also be just drawing an ironic tension and, and, and highlighting something, right? You know, the kings of the earth typically aren't the ones who are rich in humility. You know why? Because power breeds pride. And that's true whether it's political power or, or um, any other kind of social power. Anything that gives us advantages over others, whether it's economic or racial or, or, or whatever it is, right? Um, power produces pride. Kings typically are not considered the lowly of the earth. <laughs> They're the exalted of the earth. The famous are not considered the lowly of the earth. They're they're the powerful of the earth. Those with a lot of money, with those with a lot of success, those with, who are kind of on the top of the pecking order. It could be that David's being ironic and just making it clear that who are the lowly of the earth? All of us. We tend to stratify human condition. We tend to think about haves and have-nots, and, and we're always striving to make sure that we keep what we have and get more. We're always striving to move our way up the power ladder. Why? Because the more power you have, the more you can shape the world to your desires. The more power you have, the more you can get what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And we like power. Because the more powerful we are, the less dependent we have to be. The more powerful we are, the less humble we have to be the less we forget that we're lowly, that we are exposed, that we are powerless, that we are helpless. We like to create the fiction that we can control, that we can be like God. Pride. To the Lord, who is on high, the lowly are all there are. Right? When God's dealing with humanity, he's only dealing with the lowly because that's all there are. Now, we create this fiction Right? And we have these powerful tools, these powerful levers that we try to manipulate, and it's always comparative and it's always exploitative. We're always trying to get one up on somebody else so that we can have more than they have because that gives us more power than they've got, which gives us a greater freedom than we perceive they would have. The Lord who is on high looks out, and all he sees are the lowly. You know, pride, uh, Aaron brought this out last week. Pride produces two things in our lives, two enemies of our joy, entitlement and fear. They're the twin children of pride, entitlement and fear. When you have power, you feel entitled, right? You take somebody who is in abject poverty to a restaurant, they're not going to be critiquing the place setting. They're, they're not going to be critiquing um, the, the, the plating of the food. They're going to be overwhelmingly grateful for the blessing of provision. But you take somebody who's got a little bit of power, and what do they start doing? They become a Yelp reviewer. You know what I'm saying? Like McDonald's. The box was good, but the burger looked smashed. Four stars. Right? We feel entitled to a very specific kind of experience. We feel entitled to a very specific kind. I'm showing up with power, and because I'm showing up with power, I'm entitled to what that power affords me. 
and I feel defrauded when I don't get it. Guess what happens, though? When I do get it, am I grateful? No, because I'm only getting what I deserve. Entitlement kills gratitude because entitlement is the manifestation of pride. When I get what I'm entitled to, it doesn't produce gratitude in my heart. It doesn't even produce contentedness. It just keeps me from, me from feeling more discontent. Now, the other child, like, like entitlement is, is one ugly kid. The other ugly kid is fear. And they're twin kids. Fear is that when, when, when I'm filled with pride, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose what I have. I have to keep what I have and get more. I, I don't never want to lose what I've worked so hard to get. Not only do I feel entitled to a specific kind of life, my, my, my low-maintenance, hassle-free life, I deserve it, right? But I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. And so when God says, hey, I would like you to go over here and do this thing, I'm like, you know, I don't know. That might cost me. I'm afraid I might lose a little bit of my comfort. I'm afraid I might lose a little bit of, my, of what I've worked so hard to get. I might lose some of my free time. I might lose some of my finances. I might lose some of my, I don't know, this, this I, in the evenings. Now I get to just sit down and watch Netflix. I might not get to do that anymore. Fear. Entitlement and fear are the weeds that grow, that choke out your gratitude. You cannot be entitled and fearful and grateful at the same time. It destroys the harvest of your gratitude and it chokes out your joy. Those who have the most will experience the least genuine joy and gratitude. Those who think they need God the least will experience God the least. Entitlement Fear, choke out your gratitude and choke out your joy. At the end of this section, David says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Regards there means moves toward to bless. He sees them, he's near them, but the haughty he knows from afar. Why is God far away from the prideful? Did God move or did we? See, our pride motivates us to try to be like God. We don't want to be humbly dependent on God. We want to be like God. I don't want God to provide for me. I want to provide for myself. I don't want the glory of God. I want my own glory. I don't want the security of God. I want to establish my own security. Why is God standing afar from the prideful? Because the prideful have separated themselves from God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Or my 401k is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength or my free time is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength or my autonomy is my strength. Entitlement and pride choke out gratitude. They are the weeds that ruin our, uh, our strength, our joy. So catch this, y'all, humility. It's not that God is saying, I want you to grovel. He's saying, I want you to be honest. To be lowly isn't to grovel, it's simply to admit the reality that we're creatures and he's the creator. That apart from him we can do nothing. 
that he is the provider of all things, that he is the source of all things, that he is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, and because he is, I am secure, and I am significant. And because he is, I am loved and worthy of love. And because he is, I can find genuine, true soul rest and not just distraction from my discontentedness. It's humility. It's honesty. It's not groveling. It's just honesty. Us coming as creatures to the creator and recognizing that he is the giver of all good gifts. Humility of heart is the soil in which the seed of grace grows. And here's the one you're going to love the most. Trials of the fertilizer. Okay? Trials of the fertilizer. Okay? So you got the, the seed of grace, the good news of the gospel planted in your heart, humility of heart to receive it. God, you are the giver of all good gifts, the one who loves me. I'm not God. I'm the creature. I just come to you to be God. Right? I just show up with my need and you pour out your grace. Trials. Here's the thing. Trials. We often think of trials as the thing that kills our gratitude. Like, like dude, I would be grateful if I wasn't just so exhausted. I, you know what killed my gratitude today? That whiny kid. You know what ruined my gratitude today? That boss, once again, not acknowledging my contribution and stealing the credit for my work. You know what ruined my gratitude today? Conflict in the home. That ride to church this morning, I'm going to kill him later. Right? Listen, we often think of trials as the enemy of gratitude. They're not. It's not true. How you respond to the trials determines how you experience the trials. Remember, you don't control your emotions. Your thoughts do. What you think about your suffering determines how you experience your pain. How you think about the trial determines how you go through the trial. If you approach it with entitlement and fear, you will have a rich harvest of discontentment, anger, and frustration. How dare you treat me like that? How dare I have to struggle, struggle like this? I deserve better than this. Those are the thoughts that produce a rich harvest of dis discontentment, frustration, and hopelessness. Trials, on the other hand, if they are engaged in grace, can become the fertilizer that helps our gratitude to grow. If we encounter these trials in light of God's covenant promises of grace, it can actually increase the harvest of our gratitude. Take a look at verse 7. In verse 7, though I walk through the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Now notice, Christians love past tense testimonies. You know what I'm saying? Like, I used to struggle with this but now I don't, and I'm going to tell you the secret about how you never have to struggle with it either, right? We love that kind of testimony. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I walk through the midst of trouble. Like, I have family problems right now. I have a rebellious son. I have conflict in the kingdom. I have people who are trying to betray me and undermine me. Everything I'm trying to do seems to come undone. I have these great plans, they didn't work out, right? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, present tense, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. 
and your right hand delivers me. Those are proclamations of faith in the midst of the struggle. Those aren't things he's actually seeing. Remember, he's walking through the trial. But in the midst of the trial, his faith sees the hand of God over the trial. He continues to believe the blessing of God in the midst of the suffering. This is the seeds of grace bearing fruit. Let me ask you something. Um, When do you want to plant seeds? When you're hungry? Like, I'm hungry. I'm going to go plant some corn. How's that going to work for you? Like, I'm hungry, right? You want to plant the seeds before you have the need. Here's the thing. We're really, really good at being helpless when we know we're helpless. We're really, really good asking for help when we have no one else to ask. We're really, really good at running to God when there are no other options and we realize we are lowly and powerless and helpless. That's when we're like, God, I need a harvest. Now, here's the thing. God is a God of grace, and sometimes he turns water to wine. Sometimes he immediately gives you the blessing of the fruit, even though you haven't done the work, to grow the soil. Sometimes he immediately gives you the blessing of fruit even though you haven't habitually and progressively planted those seeds in your heart. God is a God of miracles and he is gracious and sometimes he doesn't. Because he wants you to grow in the practice of tilling the soil and planting the seed. Sometimes he lets you walk through the pain not because he's forsaken you, but because you need to be humbled. Not as punishment, as blessing. God doesn't want to be your crisis management guy. He wants to be your dad. He doesn't want to be the one that you call when you suddenly have no more money in your bank account and you need an infusion. He wants to be the one that you call to help you manage life, to grow in life, to become who, who who, who he is going to free you to be. Listen, you need to be planting the seeds of the harvest before you need the harvest. You need to be reminding yourself of the beauty of the gospel every single day. You need to be in the word every single day. You need to be gathering with God's people all the time, even when it doesn't feel great and you don't feel the need. David is reaping the harvest of the seeds that he has previously sown. And here's the beauty of it is as he reaps the harvest, he's planting more seeds. The fruitfulness is becoming more fruitful, right? The trials reveal our need for the fruit, and it increases the fruitfulness. Even as we eat the fruit of gratitude in the midst of the suffering, we experience a greater harvest of gratitude. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. This is something that is a steadfast truth that anchors his heart. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I want you to say that with me. You ready? The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Say it again. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Some of you need this word this morning. That is a declaration of faith in the midst of the suffering. 
That is a declaration of, of I will think on the blessings of this God so that I can experience the fruitfulness of love. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You want to have that kind of confidence in the face of trials? You want to have that, that kind of firm foundation? It only comes from being founded on the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. It only comes from receiving God's grace, growing in God's grace, nurturing your experience of God's grace, and growing grateful for God's grace. That's what gives you the energy in the midst of struggles, to not lose your foundation, not lose your joy, not lose your strength. You actually grow stronger in the face of the trial because the trial pushes you back to the source of your strength. There may be times when I feel like the world has forsaken me, but my God of steadfast love and faithfulness will never forsake me. My commitment to God may waver. His commitment to me never wavers. My situation may change and become turbulent, but his steadfast love never alters. The joy of the Lord is my strength, and gratitude is the seedbed in which it grows. The seed is God's grace. The soil is my humility. The fruitfulness comes as I learn to walk it out through the trials of life. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen, let you do a little bit of reflection. And, uh, and then we'll share communion together. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That your commitment to us doesn't rest on our ability to earn it or to deserve it. Your commitment to us doesn't change or alter with our commitment to you. Your commitment to bless us requires us only to show up with our need. We don't show up with our good works. We don't show up with our impressive behavior. We don't show up with our record of, of moral self-improvement. We show up with our need. And when we show up with our need, you show up with your grace. You are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. You will fulfill your purpose for us. Now we just give you thanks for that. We give thanks, O oh Lord, for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We give thanks, O oh Lord, that you have loved us in Christ. We give thanks, O oh Lord. Increase the bounty of our gratitude. Take a few minutes, pray. Um, go ahead and take a look at the reflection questions. We'll share communion in just a moment.